The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe Part 7 Monday, October the 1st, 2007 How Shall We Live, Roman? This is from a purely literary perspective, obviously, but right now I really wish I was a Chelsea fan. Just think how much better a book The Road to Moscow would be if I hadn't been fortunate enough to be born an Arsenal fan. The story so far this season has it all, hasn't it? The crooked Russian billionaire owner does away with his charismatic and, let's face it, pretty bloody sexy Portuguese manager, because the team has only won the two league titles, two FA Cups and two Carling Cups in the space of just three years. Not content with that, said Russian billionaire, proceeds to replace the beloved Portuguese geezer with a virtually unknown former Mossad agent who doesn't even have his scout's badge in putting the blooming nets up. And the petro-billionaire appears to be, to all intents and purposes, training and picking the side himself. Obviously, if you were writing a book, you'd add a few completely incredible touches for comic effect, like hard-as-nails defender John Terry being stretched off after having his blusher smudged by an implausibly named American centre-forward called, I don't know, something preposterous like Clint Dempsey. Yeah, that'll do. Or something equally far-fetched. You might even conjure up a scenario whereby Didier Drogba, Nijinsky, that's the horse, obviously, contrives to get himself sent off for arguing with the referee over a trifle and then kicking someone in the face. But no, really, it's best to just let the laughs come out naturally. All you'd have to do is sit and watch, then write it all down. And some lucky, pen-pushing, bloody Chelsea fan is doing just that as I type, while my team sits on top of the league, our season about as eventful as a Zen Buddhist convention, pausing to unwind during a break. If it wasn't so awful, it would be hilarious. What am I talking about? It is bloody hilarious. So there you have it. The world has been deprived of one of the great comic novels due to a simple twist of fate. But who cares? Mind you, it wasn't so funny for the protagonists themselves. Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich, Harry Enfield playing Damon Albarn in Blur the Motion Picture, watches his team's laboured goalless draw with West London rivals, Fulham, from a cosy slab of reconditioned blue plastic in the notorious shed-end at Stamford Bridge. There, among the empty diamond-white bottles and carefully nurtured and tattooed beer guts, he peers out from behind a thick cordon of private security guards as the action unfolds, wincing as much at the crowds baying for the return of their hero, the sacked Portuguese manager, as at the array of gilt-edged chances that Salomon Kalu fails to convert. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the harmonious bosom of the crowd, his chief executive Peter Kenyon is being verbally abused and spat at by the home support. And no, before you ask, it's not Dennis Wise. He's on the receiving end of a fuck-off from a referee and thus deserving of all our sympathy after a life in football lived beyond reproach. You can take the boy out of Chelsea. Mind you, it may have been no picnic in the shed, but by all accounts there had been a bit more esprit de corps there than in the home dressing room. When the assorted senior players are not slagging off Avram Grant, Mick Jones from The Clash in 20 years' time, and his old-fashioned training methods, 
Running through nettles, playing invisible ping-pong was good enough for Stanley Matthews, so it's good enough for you, young Ashley. They're presumably throwing lovingly assembled ink-bottle-bearing MiG fighter planes made from carefully folded copies of the Kensington and Chelsea Informer at Teacher's Pet, Andrei Shevchenko. It's an ill wind that blows no good, though. We do at last know the answer to that time-honoured riddle. What do you buy the man who has everything? It's all rather reminiscent of Friends, isn't it? The ones where Monica goes out with the millionaire computer software guy. Not content with the millions and the horny girlfriend who makes the best brownies in Christendom, he just has to go one step further and become the ultimate fighting machine champion of the world. He keeps the millions but loses the girl, and if they'd pursued the storyline beyond his split with Ms. Geller, a couple of limbs into the bargain, we can safely assume. Substitute the millions for billions, the software for oil, and the ultimate fighting machine champion of the world for the Premier and Champions Leagues, and the similarities, and the similarities are almost uncanny. Only Abramovich isn't going to be written out as easily as Pete was. In his recent interview with France Football, Arsene Wenger reiterated the questions he had asked of Chelsea during the time of the Ashley Cole affair. Not wishing to drag over old coals, but simply for the benefit of non-avid followers of the beautiful game, in Wenger's own words, Chelsea nicked Cole from Arsenal after a high-profile and highly illegal meeting at a London hotel. At the time, the implication was clear. If we want one of your players, we'll come and get them. Cole had come through the youth system at Arsenal and was a fan of the club. So that's what Chelsea stood for then, the sheer financial clout of one man's wealth with no ethics or politesse to constrain it. But things have changed with the departure of Mourinho. I think Abramovich has taken the bait. We're about to find out what his values are, and in a most unusual way. I want to win it better, Brian Clough's words. And that's what Abramovich wants too, to win with style like the Dutch in 1974. It's the sort of thing that fans will say too, isn't it? We had it at Arsenal during the Invincibles era. Just look at any copy of the Gooner from that period when no one in the Premier League could beat our team, and still you'll find them there, the Moners, the Carpers, the bloody know-it-alls. Most of it was directed at Sylvain Wiltord, if I remember correctly. That's the same Wiltord who scored the goal that gave us all the chance to sing We won the league in Manchester! But then, their fans, they pay for the right to expect the best, to ask for the impossible. The game can't live without them, but don't expect them to live in the real world, whatever you do. For most of us, this is our escape. And so it is with Chelsea now. Maybe this is Roman's escape hatch too. They've had their cake, and now, as is only right and proper, they want to eat it too. The game has grown so big because we're all, all of us who follow it, gluttons. We literally cannot get enough, enough success, or even just enough of the game. So this is not a dig at the blues. It's probably w what we would do too. Abramovich must be a fan, because only a fan would have let Mourinho go the way he did, for the reason that he did. For winning enough, just not in quite the right way. Anyone who's followed football over the last decade will have an idea of the kind of things that can go wrong when a self-confessed fan takes charge of his club. 
Leeds United, under the chairmanship of Peter Ridsdale, went close to achieving glory in the Champions League. They lived the high life. Even the club Goldfish was extravagantly well fed. They are now in League One, old Division Three, consumed by debts and fortunate still to be functioning as a club. Oh, I realise that Abramovich is not Peter Ridsdale. He has the wherewithal to succeed where Leeds United failed. And who knows, maybe Chelsea will win the two European Cups in the next five years that the owner seems to crave. But equally, for all his other indulgences, Ridsdale never tried to pick the team. There's been a lot of talk about the game of football losing its soul recently. If you don't believe that a mere game like football is awash with ethical and philosophical debate, just look at France football's questioning of arson, with its talk of morality and values, guardianship, goods and evils, rights and wrongs. It is, I suppose, indicative of how much the game means to us. And now, at long last, we're about to find out what Abramovich's values really are. This will be his side and they'll play his way. It promises to be a fascinating view into the mind and the soul of an oligarch. It's going to be tough, but you know something? I think he'll manage. Tuesday, October the 2nd, 2007. Casa Nebunului. In case you've been wondering, I haven't forgotten about Alex. Aliax, delete according to preference. Kleb, the nominal hero of our story, was stretched off against West Ham after a David Noble tackle so jarring it seemed to take the sting out of what had been what had otherwise been a fast paced and well contested game. If you believe Arsene Wenger, the sight of poor Alex being carried off seemed to disturb the West Ham side more than it did his own players. His leg was, as evocatively described by Le Boss, red and bruised from the knee down to the toes. But it seems he has recovered sufficiently to travel with the rest of the squad for tonight's game in Bucharest, and there's a chance he may even play. Even if Alex doesn't make tonight's game, at least he'll be a little bit fresher for the really important games coming up over the next month, in particular the trip to Liverpool and the home game against Man United. Those matches will tell us more about where this young side really is in its development. I think we'll do all right. Arson spoke of his team being capable of astonishing, and as you'll all know by now, Arson knows. See how easy it is to lapse back into faith, to be sidetracked by pernicious hope. I wish I had the same faith in the writing, or rather, I wish someone else had the same faith in the writing. You know things are bad when you start feeling affectionate towards the people who've done no more than send a cursory thanks, but no thanks, in reply to your solicitations. At least, you think, they've bothered to respond, regardless of whether, and you doubt very much that it was, what you sent them was actually read. But then you think of Alex, sweating over whether or not he's chipped a bone in his knee, and you realise that everyone gets knocked back. The team got to within 15 minutes of winning the club's first European Cup, and they've managed to carry on. So you gear yourself up to sell it to some more people who may or may not even reply. Anyway, I have to go on. For what could be worse than to give up now and then find us in the final in May and watch Alex go on to score that fabulous glory-clinching goal? Only the sort of Munich-style air crash that I'm beginning to dread, an untimely and vastly disproportionate punishment brought on by my own hubris, 
hubristic taunting of the fates, that or some other unseen act of God that might lay low our fabulously gifted and promising young team, would be just typical after such a good start. I think I'm going mad. But then, with the book as with the team, there are a few reasons for optimism. Thanks to the Gooner Online's plug, there's been a small upsurge in interest. So if nothing else, at least a few people are reading or listening. I've recorded four sections of me reading the material like this, so that's two hours worth of stuff. Seventy pages with some judicious editing. So, providing that, like the team, I can haul myself on as far as the final in May, we're looking at a book of between 350 to 400 pages in length. If I'm not in the madhouse by then, of course. And then there's tonight's game with Stour Bucharest. What do I know about Stour? Not much. They won the European Cup in, I think, 1986, and they're now owned by a nutter. How do I know this? Because he says things like this. I will play only religious songs before the matches because I am the one who pays and this is the way I like it. I will take out the song, We Will Rock You. Why play that song? So the players kill each other? Whoever wants to hear devil's music should not come to my stadium. Fair enough. There's also been a parting of the ways between Stour and Coach, the wonderfully gifted Georgie Haji. Who knows, maybe Gigi Bacali will do a Roman Abramovich and pick the Bucharest side as well as the pre-match music. We can but hope. On Sunday, we watch Michael Palin's visit to Ceausescu's grandiose palace of the people in that very city. Forget Highbury, these are marbled halls, mile after mile of them. I can't remember if it was the first of the Soviet regimes to fall, but it was an impressive sight at the time. The crowd stood in the square outside Casa Populari, the house of the people as it was known then. The dictator's grand folly... Who needs 26 churches or 7,000 homes when you can have a vast, beautifully decorated, empty building? The crowd, of course, had a different name for the Palace of the People. Casa Nebunululi. The House of the Madman. They booed and jeered him as he spoke, many of them just laughing at him. It's astonishing that they still could bring themselves to laugh. But then, what better way to see off a hated dictator? other than a firing squad, obviously, as the Romanians had the Ceausescu's face. How shall we live? Not like this, they said. It looks a pretty town, if a little bland, according to Palin, the Paris of the East. It's more like Milan, according to the former Python. Let's hope that's where the resemblance to the home of the current European champions ends. Palin meets Ilya Nastasi, the 1970s tennis star. Nasty as we used to call him, recognises Michael, but can't quite place from where. To his credit, Palin doesn't help him out. It's a touching scene, a pleasant antidote to the current climate of celebrity worship and me, me, me. Nastasi debunks the legend that he slept with 2,500 different women. When he came to write his autobiography, the Romanian had lost count of the number of partners he'd had, but, urged by his publishers to come up with a figure, calculated it on the really rather staid projection of three or four per month. When this calculation met with a frown, he plucked the larger figure out of the air. Perhaps that's where I've been going wrong. Wednesday, October the 3rd, 2007. 
For an hour and a half, life was beautiful. Arson's smiling. His top button is undone and his tie is loose. He appears to be filled with that inner glow of happiness that you sometimes see in people of, a, of an evangelical turn. The sort that keeps them warm on chilly nights as they go from door to door, confronting people they don't know, asking the impatient, sometimes angry people who emerge from behind their doors if they can perhaps spare a couple of moments, and if so, would they like to talk about Jesus? He's certainly a believer. Every other word is believe or belief. He believes this, believes that, believes in his players, so much so that even they seem to be starting to believe in themselves. And so we are starting to believe too, the fans who come away from the game's feeling, as Arsene wants us to, that for an hour and a half life was beautiful. They will show humility and respect to their former Soviet bloc hosts, of course, but those courtesies observed, for the next hour and a half life will be, by and large, we all assume, as beautiful as it has been everywhere else the team has played so far this season. So far, so beatific. So what do Arsenal do? As if they've taken heed of Robbie Earle's desire to see a little more real politic from the team on their travels abroad, they go out and win ugly. In a half-empty stadium, Arsenal certainly show their Romanian opponents humility and respect, perhaps a little too much. They almost gift Stau Bucharest a goal when an unmarked striker heads in from a set-piece only to be ruled offside, the goal disallowed. Then, as if to atone even further for some perceived advantage of the team not having, well, clever part, suffered under the yoke of a communist regime, Fabregas blasts over from six yards after good work from Van Persie. The pass that sets him up comes on a silver salver from Alexander Kleb, of course. The man with the bruised and bloodied leg must be made of steel, recovering from that tackle as he has, back running around tonight as bright and breezy as an infant. The young Spaniard's finish is uncharacteristically profligate, and he runs from the scene with his palms held together at his chest, as if in prayer, pleading forgiveness from his more righteous teammates for the sin of wastefulness. The game is on ITV4 and the channel is, with almost biblical portent, running trailers for a new post-apocalypse drama series called Jericho. One days to go, reads the countdown on the trailer. The series looks as if it is trying hard, but it will have to go some to beat Peter Drury when it comes to being overblown and overwrought. John Champion, himself a defector from the other side of the Iron Curtain, he started with the BBC, is the only ITV man I can stomach. Clive Tildesley is a close second in the least liked stakes, but no one does more than Peter D to show how far the standards have fallen since the glory days of Brian Moore and Hugh Johns. Here's an example. On 15 minutes, Adebayor is booked by a Norwegian referee, Terj Hauger, Blackburn Adam from The Apprentice, for carrying on play after having been ruled offside. Two minutes later, Marin is booked with equal pedantry but admirable consistency for kicking the ball away after a free kick has been awarded for Petri's foul on Van Persie. So far, so good. Drury, however, spends the rest of the half screeching about the disciplinary tightrope the unbooked Petri now walks, screeching, He's already been booked and Petri will have to watch himself now! Every time the player kicks a lump or two out of one of the Arsenal players. 
It's only at half-time that a member of the ITV backroom staff is able to sit Peter down with a nice cup of cocoa, rearrange the tartan blankets on his bath chair and explain the order of events. Rada is booked, not, sadly, for being over-theatrical, and Drury, perhaps still reeling from the embarrassment of the Marin-Petri yellow card fiasco, provides the satirical match reporter with an open goal when he starts talking about Fabregas's beautiful tackle. During the interval, we get to see the aforementioned, as well as the Romanian broadcast director's own eccentric choice of highlights from the first half. Almunia AAAs at his defence, a Bucharest player who barely featured runs interminably in slow-mo, and we get to see Sesk at his prayers again. Then there's the half-time view from the pitch side. Arsene has ditched the humility and respect by now, of course, with the game stuck as it is at nil-nil. He glares at Abue, glares at Kleb, glares at Adibayo when all the poor lad does is put the ball out of play so a stale player can get can get some treatment. Even the Hosanna-like choral interjections of the Champions League theme that keep coming over the PA system for no apparent reason every couple of minutes or so fail to restore in Le Boss any of his pre-match saintliness. This new mood of cynicism spreads quickly to the gantry as Jim Beglin offers some unsolicited advice to football club owners. They shouldn't be interfering with football matters. Let's just hope Roman was tuning in, eh, Jim? But if this jibe is aimed at stour owner Gigi Beckerley, it seems wide of the mark. Serdin, the player Bacali fell out with coach Georgie Haji over when the latter refused to pick him, forces Torre into a last-ditch headed clearance as his volley sails over the head of the AWOL Manuel in Almunia. Then on 71 minutes, substitute Jakob has an even better chance to put the home side ahead. The flag stays down as he runs on with only Almunia to beat, only for him to plant his shot high and wide. Whoever's picking the side, they're giving Arsenal a good game. But by now, Arsenal have ridden their luck as far as they'll need to. Adibayor now provides the side with a windmill-like target to aim at when the shorter pass isn't on. They now have an easy get-out ball, as he seems to be able to pluck every high clearance they can throw at him out of mid-air, no matter how seemingly overstruck. This allows the midfield to advance and play off him more as the game goes on, with Gilberto on for Ebue, there to tidy up in the central midfield, the versatile and increasingly impressive Flamini moves wide right. He's on hand just behind Van Persie when Adebayor's inviting cut back from the byline just evades Fabregas' control. But Flamini is not needed. RVP11 is on hand, with a calm and measured finish, stroking the ball in high to the left-hand corner with his left foot. Arsenal play out the remaining 14 minutes with a few of those lengthy passages of passing and movement during which the opposition opposition can only chase and watch as the ball is teased around them like the dance of the seven veils. There are some beautiful sequences as the clock ticks down but none to match that which the team is putting together with these results. They've won every game they've played since that Jens Lehmann fumble gifted Blackburn an equaliser in the game at Ewood Park. That's how you do it, crows Drury, and even I can't help but warm to him and his words. An object lesson in European football. Nine wins on the spin. I haven't checked this up, but if Drury and Beglin's stats are correct, with the first English team to, be- to beat Stour in Bucharest.
Thursday, October the 4th, 2007. First person, omniscient. I got a call from Bob's agent. You think I move in mysterious ways? Wait till you see this guy. Hi, Lou, how's business? I'm loving the book. Ah, oh, that's too bad, Lou. Have a little faith, huh? Something will turn up. Oh, sure, Lou, anything I can do to help. By the way, I got a great deal this month on Red Sea partings. What's with people nowadays, huh, Lou? You remember back in the old days, a parting of the Red Sea would have been a cause for celebration. Now, you can't give them away. Sorry, Lou, you were saying. About Bob's book. How can I be of service? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I see. I can appreciate Bob's concerns, Lou, and I sympathize with your plight and that of any would-be publishers, but I'm afraid there's not much I can do. Kind of goes against company policy. You with me, Lou? Oh, sure. We, we can do you a broad outline, give you a general idea of what happens in the end. Day become night, skies falling, mountains crumbling to the sea, and so on and so forth. But anything more specific than that would be way off bounds, I'm afraid. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, I'd love for him to be right, Lou. Really, I would. That club's one hell of a player. And <laughs> no shorts. But it really would violate one of our most important rules to tell you any more. And you know what sticklers we offer the rule book up here, Lou? It's all spelled out in my own book as a matter of interest. You really should have a look at it sometime. It really is a good book, even if I say so myself. Mm, not so good, Lou. Sales have been better. A lot of competition in the spiritual and lifestyle sector right now, but we live in hope. Look, I I'm really sorry, Lou. I, I wish there was something more that I could do, but you know how it is. My hands are tied. It's like I'm always saying to my boy, I might be omnipresent, but you can't expect me to be everywhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's life. Uh-huh. Well, that's football. Take a look at last night. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. Me too. Some accumulator. Valencia, Liverpool, Milan. So the kids go hungry. Ah, well, what are you going to do? Sure thing, Lou. Thanks for being so understanding. Okay, Lou. You too. Uh-huh. Amen to that.